0: Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Bi-Weekly Geopolitical Report for August 16th, 2022. I'm Phil Adler, and joining me today is Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady. Today, we return to a theme familiar to anyone who has been listening to us for a while, and that is the decline of globalization and the implications for investors. And the vehicle for our discussion today is a book, that appeared for a while this year on the new york times bestseller list for non-fiction the title is a formidable one the book is called the end of the world is just the beginning mapping the collapse of globalization and the author is peter zeon z-e-i-h-a-n and bill this book is not zeon's first rodeo tell us about him
1: well you're correct phil he's been around He was was in the State Department for a while, worked for other Washington think tanks. I first came across his work when he was with Stratfor. That's a private intelligence firm that I've subscribed to since the mid-1990s. A number of geopolitical analysts did a tour at Stratfor under the tutelage of George Friedman. He's gone off on his own now and has a firm called Zeon on Geopolitics. With his recent book, he has published a total of four. Our CEO and CIO, Mark Keller, and I were considering writing a book on the unraveling of U.S. hegemony. But after I read Zeon's first book, The Accidental Hedgeman, I told Mark there really was no point. Not only had Zeon beat us to it, but he did a
0: better job than we would have. And why does this particular book strike a major chord at Confluence Investment Management? Well, simply put,
1: we have have held a similar position to Zihans for years. Our first formal presentation on the end of U.S. hegemony was in 2012, but we had been talking about it from an investment point of view as early as 2009. So to some extent, his book aptly describes what we think is unfolding.
0: Bill, the book discusses how America's great geographical advantages helped our country prosper and and grow to be a superpower without the need of colonies. And it also discusses a momentous decision by the United States following World War II to open and support trade routes around the world. What objectives were behind this decision?
1: Well, as most decisions go, there were several objectives, but the most important one was we just didn't want to fight World War III. For various reasons, we were not inclined to become an imperial power in the classic European sense, and we also wanted to structure a world order that would avoid a major war. And so to do so, we opened up the world to trade by allowing nearly all nations to trade with us. We also provided a currency and a reserve asset to conduct that trade and ensured global security to support it. Secondarily, the US doesn't want a hostile power to control Europe because it would contest for control of the Atlantic Ocean. So we intervened in World War I to prevent Germany from doing so, but assumed our work was done when Berlin surrendered. World War II proved that just wasn't the case. So after World War II, we simply took over the defense of Europe, in part to prevent the Soviets from gaining control, and in part to resolve the German problem in Europe. It wasn't cheap, but it was effective. And finally, in the Pacific, we took over the security of Japan, which led the rest of the region to coexist with Tokyo.
0: Now, as the book details, globalization was positive for the United States for a whole host of reasons, but there were negatives as well, which became more apparent with the passage of time. The book states pretty strongly that American companies and American workers were absolutely sacrificed. Do you agree with this finding?
1: Well, if you asked me that question before the 1980s, it wouldn't have been obvious that was the case. This was because the U.S. economy was so dominant relative to the rest of the world that we could absorb the cost of this trade structure and still steadily improve U.S. living standards. But by the late 1970s, the world had caught up, and so U.S. leaders had to choose. And as Zihan notes, the choice was to jettison American workers and some firms, especially in manufacturing. But for other firms, the global trade order was a, a bonanza. Some workers also prospered, but the majority only enjoyed low-cost imports.
0: The book also suggests that it was globalization that led to aging demographics around the world. Of course, aging demographics does not bode well for economic growth. Can you discuss this problem of globalization and aging demographics?
1: Urbanization and industrialization shift the economics of child-rearing. In a rural setting, children, frankly, are an economic benefit. They're usually employed to some degree in running the farm, and so the more the better. But once urbanization sets in and workers join the industrial workforce, children become a, an economic burden. As the U.S. trade system, what Xeon called the order, spread, birth rates started falling around the world because children cost more. Now, to be fair, this wasn't the only reason. Improvements in medicine lowered child mortality. You can see it in the demographic data. Around 1900, the life expectancy of an infant wasn't very good. It only started to get better once a child reached the age of five. But with improved medicine, life expectancy rose, and thus parents weren't necessarily pressed to have additional children due to improved survivability. Initially, when birth rates fell, newly industrializing nations had a significant demographic benefit. The number of workers compared to the elderly and very young rose. This relationship, which demographers call the dependency ratio, fell. But with the passage of time, it started to rise in a number of countries and not in a good way. It rose due to the
0: expansion of the elderly population. Bill, the book discusses why globalization depends on U.S. support, including our willingness to absorb other countries' products and to pay for the military oversight that ensures the safe passage of goods. Would you agree that without U.S. hegemony, the global trading system will be deeply fractured?
1: Yes. Our position is that it's kind of game over for the current global trading system if the U.S. does what we expect, which is to give up its hegemonic role.
0: And if Xeon is right, what are the implications for investors?
1: Well, in a nutshell, they're not very good. First, complex supply chains won't be sustainable. These chains are complex to reduce costs. Simplifying them will be inflationary. Second, labor power will increase. That's actually good for the majority of Americans, but but not for investors. Now, that doesn't mean all areas of the market will suffer. Commodities should do well because the security supply will be disrupted. Small and mid-caps could do better because the benefits of global investment will decline. In general, large-caps exploit global conditions better than their smaller counterparts.
0: In your review of this book, you suggest actions which might delay or mitigate these worst-case results. First, reducing inequality in the U.S. How would this help?
1: Well, if the U.S. ends its hegemonic role, it would be the first time in history that a nation willingly did so. All other hegemons had that role taken from them. And I think that if we do that, it will be because we failed to create a domestic policy that encouraged widespread acceptance of the cost of hegemony. It's rather clear that the benefits of globalization have gone to a small part of the U.S. electorate. Distributing those benefits better would be helpful. Expanding transfer payments and higher taxes on upper-income households is one solution.
0: Second, you say elites must bear more of the military burden. Could you, could you explain that? Describe a scenario that would accomplish this.
1: Well, reinstituting the draft or some other form of universal service that all citizens must do would have a leveling effect. I think that one positive impact of the draft is the forced mixing of income classes.
0: And finally, you say that China must assure the world it is a safe place to invest. Do you think that current and apparently severe economic problems within China might force it to reconsider some of its recent policies?
1: Well, you might think so. But I think General Secretary Xi has made two fundamental errors. First, he's assuming the U.S. is in terminal decline. That's really not the case. From the outside, especially compared to the forced social order of China, America looks chaotic and unraveling. In reality, this is what America usually looks like before it restructures. But by assuming terminal decline, he thinks that he can be aggressive in pressing China's interests. Second, I don't think he appreciates the precarious state of his own economy. China's debt's too high, its demographics are awful, and the economy remains terribly dependent on trade. I think he thinks the hand he holds is stronger than it is. So without new leadership in China, I would not count on a reversal. And with Xi moving to secure a third term, he's more likely to surround himself with the like-minded, meaning he will never hear anything contrary.
0: You conclude, Bill, that the U.S. is best positioned to withstand deglobalization, but that Germany and China are destined to decline. Why?
1: Well, demographics mostly. But it's also important to note that both nations prospered under the American-led order. Without the U.S., China has to figure out how to secure trade and maintain growth, and the EU and Germany have to figure out how to get along.
0: You also conclude that emerging market investments will become more difficult as inflation rises around the world. As an individual investor, am I right to imagine a more scary world in the future for investing? After all, things seem to be changing in such a major way right now. And this is a an investing world that I'd probably be unwise to attempt alone without professional help.
1: Well, I'm sure there are several people, Phil, that think you and I should probably seek professional help. But for investors, the biggest issue is that everything that has worked for the past four decades may not work going forward. Not only does that require guidance, but that guidance has to come from someone who understands how the world is changing.
0: Thank you, Bill. Thanks for recommending Peter Zeihan's book and, and adding it to your list of recommended reads. I'm glad to hear also that it's a, a fairly accessible read, an easy read, with even some humor included. To our listeners, our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice, and this information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Edner.